from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering and his top deputy are leaving the office together. Michael Griffin and Lisa Porter write in an email to staff that they're taking a private sector opportunity. Inside Defense reports their last day is July 10th. The Navy's top acquisition leader says he's very concerned about a strike in its third day at the Bath Ironworks shipyard in Maine. Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development and Acquisition James Hondo Gertz says the Navy expects the shipyard's management and the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers to reach an agreement quickly to keep construction on track. Breaking Defense reports seven ships are under construction in the yard, six Arleigh Burke-class destroyers and the last Zumwalt-class destroyer. Service members that didn't opt into the blended retirement system in 2018 would get another chance under a new bill from Washington Senator Patty Murray. She says the more than 400,000 people that opted into the plan that year would have been higher with more and better information and training from the department. GovExec reports Murray's bill would require service members to affirmatively choose either the current pension system or the blended retirement system. Black service members in the Army, Navy and Air Force are about twice as likely to face trial in general and special courts martial as their white counterparts. The Government Accountability Office says more comprehensive studies of race in the military would help the Defense Department address these disparities and make sure the military justice system is fair. Brenda Farrell is Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office and testifying before uh, a subcommittee of the House Armed Services Committee. Brenda, thanks for coming on the program. What did the subcommittee want to know from you and what did you tell them? Well, our statement last week was based on a May 2019 report that was actually driven by this particular subcommittee, uh, the Subcommittee on Military Personnel of the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, we had a, uh, as I said, a congressionally mandated report to determine if the military services had the capabilities to identify disparities in the military justice system. So they were most interested in the findings and the recommendations and the status of the recommendations in this particular report. I, I noted one thing that I think is maybe the key element of this in my view. Racial disparities generally were not present in convictions or punishments. So in the initiation of actions, there's a disparity, not a disparity in the outcomes. Is there a way to tell why that happened that way, Brenda? No, there's not. And we did do an extensive analysis uh, because the data was inconsistent in the uh, DOD's databases. We analyzed uh, initiations and other reported actions in the military justice database, the military criminal investigative database, and the military personnel databases. We merged those records together we used a unique uh, identifier, such as a social security number to make sure that the service member's profile was uniform. We used OMB standards for race and groups, and we did a multivariate uh, regression analysis. We found, as, as you're noting, that 
disparities are most likely to happen when a service member enters the uh, military justice system. We found that there was no statistically significant differences for convictions and for punishments. We found the same thing with the exception for uh, black service members in the navies were less likely to dis be dismissed or discharged after conviction. Why do we see these things? That is the big question. Uh, the causes of disparities has not been studied. This is one of our recommendations. This was also reinforced in uh, last year's National Defense Authorization Act for DOD to study the causes of what's behind these disparities. You mentioned the inconsistency in the data. What is the problem with that, and, and what's causing the inconsistency, uh, inconsistency in the data, Brenda? The services have not had uniform standards to categorize race and ethnic groups. Uh, as I noted, we, we used the Office of Management and Budget Standards to do our analysis when we merged the records. This is uh, something that they recognize for race, for example, uh, the options range from 5 to 32 uh, to determine what the race is of a service member. And we see the same thing for the ethnic group. It's 2 to 25 options to choose from. So they are moving now uh, to have uh, uniform uh, criteria so that all the services are using the same categories for race and ethnic group. You noted in your testimony last week, Brenda, that uh, when you did this work originally last year, you made 11 recommendations and that some of them there's progress some of them still work to do um, where, where have you seen progress in the recommendations that you made and where have you not seen the progress that would be helpful for the department well there were 11 recommendations two have been implemented uh, one was actually directed to the coast guard in uh, terms of collecting uh, information on gender uh, the other recommendation that was implemented was regarding including demographic information in the annual reports that DOD submits on military justice actions to Congress. So that has been reinforced again in statute, so that, that's taken care of. The hard work is ahead of them. Uh, DOD concurred with all the recommendations, and like I've noted, several of these recommendations have been reinforced in, in statute now. Uh, it's going to require oversight, though, because for example, the recommendation to study the causes of disparities, the NDAA mandates that DOD begin work uh, to study the causes, but there's not an end date. I think they recognize that they st DOD still needs to fix the data, and it, this is going to take um, uh, some time in order to address these causes. But it's going to require oversight to make sure that it's not just another study that began and didn't finish. Where is that oversight most appropriate to come from, or is that up to Congress to decide who should be watching all of these things, Brenda? Well, I, I think that was one of the reasons for the hearing, to, to put DOD on notice that uh, Congress is aware of what's been mandated. They're aware of our report. That was one of the questions that I did receive at the hearing, how best to make sure DOD implements these. We will continue to monitor these recommendations, but I think the ultimate oversight is going to come from Congress, and I'm sure they'll probably use us to help them with that. Brenda Farrell, thanks very much as always. Thank you. Up next, the first major moves in this year's defense authorization journey. Straight ahead on Government Matters, Capitol Hill's impact on the defense industrial base. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The House Armed Services Committee should have its markup of the National Defense Authorization Act ready by next week. The Senate's version is headed for a vote. It includes several new provisions that would impact the defense industrial base. General Hawk Carlisle, U.S. Air Force, retired as president and CEO of the National Defense Industrial Association. Hawk, welcome back. Thanks for coming. What's in the Senate's version of the NDAA that uh, is now out of the SASC and headed to the floor uh, that is of note to you? Um, there's a couple of things I think that are really interesting and I think are a move forward. I, I'd start off by saying I think uh, if you look at what's going on in the House and certainly where we've gotten out of committee in the Senate is uh, certainly at the committee and subcommittee level, the bipartisanship of the of the bill uh, is coming through, which I think is really important. Uh, now, when it gets to the full House and the full Senate, uh, there may be more controversy, but I, I, I certainly appreciate and am encouraged by the fact that right now, um, it is bipartisan. I think a couple of big things come out. I think the Pacific Deterrence Initiative is a big one. It's 1.4 billion in uh, 21 and 5.5 billion in 22. I, you, you know, Admiral Phil Davidson, Indo-PACOM commander, uh, I know well, is a good friend of mine, and I will tell you it's really important to him uh, to be able to uh, have that kind of the same thing Europe has with the European Deterrence Initiative to have that in the Pacific, given the pacing threat. Uh, and the challenge our country faces is predominantly China uh, and their abilities and, and what we know their plans are. So I, I think Phil is really happy with that. I think the shipbuilding uh, consortium and work in between Department of Labor uh, as well as the defense industrial base on shipbuilding, uh, Congress is still committed to 355 ship Navy and uh, they made a move forward in 21. Uh, and again, I, I think that's incredibly important. If you look at presence around the world and our ability to project power uh, and to uh, support friends, partners, and allies, uh, uh, see, you know, our Navy is incredibly important. So I think that's a good move forward. I think one of the challenges coming forward will be um, maintaining legacy capability while you're still trying to modernize and maintain readiness. I think, you know, um, if you look at... Uh, the number of airplanes that cannot be retired, A-10s, RQ-4s, KC-10s, KC-135s, fully understand Congress's intent on minimum number of uh, aircraft in a mission area. But on the same hand, you know, you have a limited top line. You have to maintain readiness. At the same time, you have to modernize for a potential threat out there. So I think those are challenges that uh, will continue to be worked out as we move forward. A couple of the things that you mentioned there, Hawk, strike me as uh, a confirmation, a message essentially from Congress to the administration, to the Pentagon. We endorse the national defense strategy because the PDI, uh, the 355-ship Navy, are all what the Pentagon has said. Uh, Secretary Mattis, now Secretary Esper, have said are important components of executing the national defense strategy. Is that a fair read on my part, or is there something there that, that am I seeing something that's not really there? No, I think you're exactly right, Francis. I think it, uh, it highlights the fact that we know what China wants to do. Uh, we know, and they're very open and vocal about it. They, you know, whether it's Made in China 2025, the Silk Road, Belt and Road Initiative, um, everything they're trying to do, they're taking the nine dash line, they're building, turning reefs into islands, um, and they're putting defensive and they're putting military equipment out on those islands that they're creating uh, in, in the middle of the South China Sea. So there's no doubt about what they want to do. And, you know, to some extent, I think 
by us highlighting what they're doing in other countries around the world. You look what just happened with China and Australia and, and the cyber attack. Uh, I think uh, the intentions of China are becoming clearer, not only in this country, but internationally. And I think Congress is recognizing that. And that's a lot of the reason they put uh, the provisions in the NDAA that they did in 21. What's the implication in all of that, Hawk, for the defense industrial base, especially in a COVID environment when the base is saying, we want to make sure that we're able to maintain the supply chain, maintain the flow of equipment, and so on. Um, what does that mean that that's the message that's coming out of Congress? Well, I think there's a couple of things uh, that come out. One is, uh, you know, if you look at what happened in COVID, uh, in a lot of, to a lot of extent, the defense industrial base was a bit of a safe haven in that the essentiality and critical infrastructure, the defense industrial base stayed at work. Um, and, and so the, they can, the companies continued to, to be engaged with the producing equipment and, and, you know, the pay that I think the Department of Defense did a good job with accelerating payments, progress payments and, and taking care of the defense industrial base. Having said that, it's also COVID-19 and the national debt. Uh, and, you know, even in 21, it's a flat budget. It's actually decreased buying power given inflation because it's 0.05% increase, which after inflation is a decrease, as well as a 3% pay raise for our warfighters, which is incredibly well earned. But again, it decreases your buying power for equipment readiness. So I, I think um, what it says is we're going to have to be very diligent as we go forward. I think the defense industrial base is going to have to be very uh, bang for the buck, good uh, caretakers of taxpayer dollars, uh, and they're going to have to get the most they can out of, out of the, the money in a, what I think will be flat budgets. Um, obviously, there's a lot more to come in, in what's going to happen in the rest of this NDIA, NDAA as well as what's going to happen in November. So I think that's all part of it. The only other thing I'd add is um, I think some of the moving things onshore, securing our supply chain, DPA Title III, that all bodes well for the defense industrial base as well in that we, we are really going to take, and I know department's going to do this, whole country's going to do this across the spectrum, whether it's medical supplies or defense equipment, is our critical infrastructure, our critical supplies, critical materials, and our ability to have a secure and stable and uh, robust uh, supply chain across the spectrum. So I think that uh, bodes well for the defense industrial base as well. Hawk Carlisle of NDIA, thanks very much. Up next, the Pentagon's new space strategy and what it means about warfare in space. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's new about the militarization goals? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. The Pentagon has a new defense space strategy that it says is aimed at setting the U.S. up to compete, deter, and win in space. The strategy emphasizes integrating space power into national joint and combined operations. Todd Harrison's director of the Aerospace Security Project, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Todd, thanks for coming on the program. Uh, Stephen Cate, the Defense Department, when uh, this rolled out, said that this is the platform by which the Defense Department will guide the transition of space, I'm paraphrasing, from essentially a place where things happen, uh, non-warfare, to a potential battle space. Is that what you see as you read through this defense strategy? 
It is, and that's one of the most remarkable things about this defense strategy, uh, is it's very explicit uh, about how space has become a modern warfighting domain. Uh, this is an evolution that's happened over time, uh, but this strategy explicitly calls out Russia and China as having weaponized space. And to my knowledge, that's the first time uh, that we've seen that explicit in one of these strategy documents, talking about how you know Russia and China's activities in space have really you know constituted weaponization in terms of the capabilities uh, that they have de uh, deployed uh, and tested in order to destroy other space systems. Yeah, there are four lines of effort detailed in this space strategy, Todd, and they get right to the point. The very first one is building a comprehensive military advantage in space, very explicit. That fits with the language of the national defense strategy and the national security strategy, doesn't it? It does, and you know, I know that for some folks, talking about space in this way can be a bit jarring, especially within the space community to talk about space superiority. Um, you know, that for some people that, that raises, you know, a, a lot of big questions and concerns, uh, but you also have to put it in the context of how the military uses that terminology. Uh, we're very comfortable talking about air superiority, uh, you know, and superiority of our forces on the ground and at sea. Um, and really, when they, the military talks about space superiority, they're talking about it in that same way. They're talking about how we need to be able uh, to use space for military purposes at the time, place, and manner of our choosing, and we need to be able to deny uh, the advantages of space to our adversary when necessary. It's not about you know being able to take control of space or take territory or anything like that. It's just about being able to ensure that we can use it and we can deny the use of it to someone else. This defense space strategy is a new document, but it is not a new concept. It's an update from a strategy released in 2011. Is that militarization the basic difference between 2011 and today, Todd? I mean, quite honestly, I think that this strategy, it, there's more continuity than change. Uh, it is continuing in the same direction that the Obama administration was going, quite, quite frankly. Uh, and it's not so much a policy choice about, you know, how far we want to go in terms of using space for military purposes, both offensive and defensive counter space operations. Really, it's being driven by uh, adversary nations, by Russia and China in particular. They are forcing us to, you know, view space more and more as a, a modern war fighting domain. I mentioned the four lines of effort and talked about the first one. The second one's integrating military space power into national joint and combined efforts. Third is shaping the strategic environment. And the fourth is cooperating with allies, partners, industry, and other U.S. government departments and agencies. Of the allies, partners, and the non-governmental people in that equation in number four, Todd, who are the most important ones in your view for the United States government, for the United States military to cultivate maybe that they don't have tight relationships with today? Yeah, I mean, I think they're all important, uh, but I would have to say, I think there's a lot of opportunity uh, in building connections and relationships and leveraging what's happening in the commercial space sector. There's so much going on in commercial space right now that really could benefit uh, U.S. national security. I mean, if you look, for example, SpaceX, they're launching their Starlink constellation of satellites. 
They've got about 540 satellites in that constellation now. That's the largest satellite constellation we've ever seen. Uh, and they keep building on it, you know, with about 60 new satellites per launch. And, you know, right now they're launching at a cadence of about, you know, once every two weeks. Uh, so, you know, they're developing capabilities in terms of coverage, in terms of proliferation, in terms of learning how to operate large constellations that quite frankly, DOD doesn't have. Uh, and so I think building those bonds and those connections uh, and figuring out how DOD can leverage the innovation that's happening in commercial space is gonna be a big part of how we maintain our military advantage going forward. Um, 30 seconds left, Todd. One concern I've heard about this is this is another document in a series of policy documents. And I wonder if that concerns you the way that it does other observers. I mean, you know, this is part of the process, right? And if you want to get the Pentagon moving in a certain direction, these policy documents are kind of a, a necessary prerequisite, but they are not sufficient. Uh, ultimately, if you want to see the, you know, the direction that's contained in this strategy document implemented, it comes down to budget and acquisition programs. Uh, and so what we should be looking for in, you know, the coming years uh, is where do they start putting money towards these activities and these initiatives, and is it a sustained effort? Todd Harrison, thanks very much as always. All right, thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.